Let's just dive right into the text. Mark chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Then Jesus went out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered, and he said to him, Okay, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now let's begin with our scene of activity. It's still Tuesday during Jesus' week of passion. After a full day of teaching in the temple, Jesus, the disciples, they make their way out of Jerusalem. They're heading back to Bethany, which as we've mentioned, is where Jesus is staying the night each of these days during his week of passion more than likely at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Somewhere between Jesus exiting the temple, making his way down the Kidron Valley to the east, and up the western slope of the Mount of Olives, somewhere in between this journey. As the disciples are looking back to this incredible structure, the temple, the temple mount, the temple complex, they begin to brag. The disciples begin to point out the majesty of the temple construction. They say, teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. A source of pride, no doubt, for the disciples. Now, at this point in history, you should note that the temple itself has gone through three construction phases. There was first the first temple, also known as Solomon's Temple built somewhere in the 10th century BC. It was designed, if you recall, by King David and modeled after the tabernacle, the place of meeting. King David building all these palaces thinking, I have these permanent houses, but God's house is still a tent. David's desire to build the temple, but he couldn't. Why? Because he had blood-stained hands. He had committed sin. And he wasn't allowed to build the temple, but that didn't keep him from procuring all the materials and laying out all the supplies and getting it all set up for his son to make it the first point of his agenda in his kingdom. But the first temple, after being used for 400 or so years, it was destroyed, demolished by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., when King Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem. And it laid in ruins for several years until the second phase, which we would call the second temple, also known as Zerubbabel's temple. It was constructed in 518 BC. Following the fall of Babylon to the Persians, the Jews wanted to return to their homeland and the Persians capitulated. And there were several phases or waves of exiles returning to the land. Zerubbabel's heart was to rebuild the temple, which was still laying in ruins, a source of national pride, a source of of their religion, knowing it would be important as a point of reference to bring the exiles back to a land tattered by war. So Zerubbabel receives permission. He goes back with the help of Ezra the priest, It's an incredible thing. It's an amazing work. It's a miracle in and of itself. But according to Ezra, this second temple, anyone who could remember Solomon's temple were told wet because it was just a shell of its former glory. And it would remain this way for several hundred years. 
until the third construction phase, which we would call Herod's temple. Herod, King Herod, Herod the Great, was an Edomite. And he was kind of in so many ways a Roman puppet head, a puppet master ruling this particular area of the world. And in this area of the world were a lot of Jews and recognizing that as an Edomite, he would have a hard time rallying any support or cooperation from the Jews. Herod the Great decided that he would do something to try to gain some goodwill amongst the Jewish population. And that act would be rebuilding, restoring, reconstructing the temple. And Herod was quite a builder. As a matter of fact, the project began in 19 BC, and it would take some 80 years to complete. By the time the project was finished, the temple there in Jerusalem was one of the most magnificent, awe-inspiring structures in the entire Roman world. People would travel from all over the globe to simply see this structure, this temple, this house of worship built by Herod the Great. When Herod began the construction project, he bragged that in building the temple, his aim, his goal was to build something so incredible, so well-designed that it would outlast the pyramids of Egypt. Herod's temple, a reconstruction of Zerubbabel's temple, was built in the same dimensions as Solomon's temple, as the original. The temple itself was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits in width, 40 cubits high. However, though that blueprint laid out in scripture, modeled Zerubbabel and also Solomon, it was the complex that surrounded the temple that eclipsed anything, including Solomon's, anything that had ever come before it. Historians tell us that the outer courtyards of Herod's temple were 500 yards in length and 400 yards in width. You're talking the complex being five football fields by four football fields. The average height of the complex was 165 feet with the pinnacle of the temple rising 23 stories above the foundation. And the engineering behind the temple was a marvel in and of itself. The complex was constructed using huge quarried limestones that were told fit together so perfectly that there was no need for any kind of mortar to hold them together. The stones fit so perfectly that you couldn't fit, even today, a credit card between the gaps. Perfect construction. Some have discovered some of the ashlers recently of the Herodian temple, and they weighed 16,000, 160,000 pounds. So 160,000 pounds. And these stones were standing or elevated 100 feet above the foundation. Imagine that. A stone, a single stone, weighing 160,000 pounds, resting 100 feet into the air. Other discovered blocks of the Herodian temple, on average, are 50 feet wide, 25 feet high, and 15 feet deep. They're so large, so heavy, so massive, that today, modern cranes would not be able to pick them up and put them into place. How Herod built the temple is in many ways still today a mystery. 
and on top of the limestone. We're told that Herod imported brilliant white marble from Europe. And this marble, in many instances, that overlaid the limestone, kind of a dull-looking stone, in many instances, the marble was overlaid with golden plates. Josephus tells us that the complex was so brilliant to the eye. In the noonday sun, when the sun reached its height, the way that the temple shined from the gold and the white, people could see it radiating. They could see the reflection of this building from 15 to 20 miles away, thinking, even in the midst of summer, that there was snow covering the temple itself. It was that brilliant. And so, we can understand why these disciples begin to brag. The temple at this point had become the singular source of national pride, of national identity, of nationalism for the Jews. Still a people living in domination and subjugation. They saw the temple and they took pride in it. According to Acts chapter 6, verse 13, it was a crime of blasphemy, not to speak ill against God, but to also speak ill against the temple itself. That's how highly they regarded this building. Now, in response to their gloating, Jesus reigns on their parade. He pops their balloon, bursts their bubble. Jesus kind of is a killjoy because in response to their bragging about the magnificence of the temple, he predicts what would happen to this temple. He said, you see this building, these buildings, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, right from the beginning, I want you to file something in your brain. I want you to take note of something that I think is crucially important, often overlooked in regards to understanding the rest of chapter 13. And that is in making a prediction, a prophecy concerning the destruction of Herod's temple. Jesus Yes, he's speaking prophetically, but his prophecy is also meant to be taken completely, 100% literally. It is a literal prophecy. Jesus' words down to the nuts and bolts would take place, would happen, would occur, would be fulfilled exactly as Jesus said they would. There's no uh, vagueness there's no ambivalence, there's no mystery, there's no wordplay. Jesus is saying, you see that temple? The destruction of it's gonna be so complete that not one stone will be left upon another. Now, first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote exclusively about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of Herod's temple, not as a historian interviewing eyewitnesses, or as a historian looking back to events, trying to reconstruct how it might have happened. No, Josephus, and this is what makes his history so fascinating and important for us as Christians. He writes about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as an eyewitness of the events themselves. Josephus, we reference him a lot, but we don't know much about him. He was a Galilean Jew who had been the head of Jewish forces during the first Jewish-Roman war against Roman general Vespasian. Now, the Jews didn't stand a chance. 
Josephus knew it. They fought valiantly, but recognizing that their destruction was imminent, Josephus, he does something a bit shrewd. He decides to strike a deal with Vespasian that in exchange for his life, he would defect, in essence, that he would switch to the other side. He would, yes, be a hostage, but he would be an interpreter for the Roman armies. In essence, Josephus was a turncoat. He was a traitor. Now, Vespasian goes back to Rome. Josephus goes with him. Over the period of time, Josephus even becomes a Roman citizen and changes his name. As things continue forward, Vespasian becomes emperor, and Josephus becomes good pals with Vespasian's son, a man named Titus, who is about to embark on an attack, on a campaign against Israel, against Jerusalem. Titus was about to leave Rome, 69 AD, under the good graces of his father. He decides to take Josephus with him. They go to Jerusalem to lay siege to Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, Titus beginning his siege begins to witness something horrible. Jerusalem was a pretty fortified city. It had great walls. It was perched up on top of a mountain, had great defenses, had its own water source. Uh, The Jews often, when being attacked, would hunker down and try to just live out however long the siege would take, thinking that they would get bored and move on. Titus didn't get bored. Things got so bad within the city itself that Titus cried out to God asking for mercy upon what was occurring within the city. They ran out of food. They began to run out of water. Women turned to cannibalism, began eating their own children. People were dying of starvation. Josephus writes extensively about the subsequent famine that took place. Now, according to Josephus' account, realizing that the fall of the city was inevitable, many of the survivors, those that remained, they retreated into the most fortified, strongest structure within the city itself, thinking that, okay, the city's gonna fall, let's barricade ourselves in for our last stand. That structure was the temple. Now, Titus had been clear that he wanted the temple preserved. It was an awesome structure. However, in an ill-advised attempt to flush out the people hunkering down in the temple complex, a drunken soldier accidentally started a fire because the temple with the limestone and with the marble and with the gold on the outside and because the inside was lined with cedar, as the fire spread on the inside of the building, the cedar wood ignited things began to burn out of control. We're told that things got so hot because of the way that the temple was built that it literally became an oven. The fire was so hot that the roof of the temple lined with golden plates melted and the gold began to run down the walls across the floor and began to seep into the walls. Now to retrieve the gold, because that was the spoil of war. That's how a Roman soldier was paid. You went in, you commanded, you conquered, whatever you wanted to keep was yours, that was your payment. So seeing all this gold lining all of these stones, systematically, Titus commanded that the temple be deconstructed stone by stone. When it was done, 
There was literally, and we know this as a fact of history, there was not one stone left upon another, exactly fulfilling in a literal way Jesus' prophecy. Well, we're told in verse 3 that as Jesus here, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, the halfway point, about a mile outside of Jerusalem. Most pictures that you see of Jerusalem itself, the Temple Mount, are taken there from the Mount of Olives. It's a very common tourist destination. Great place to sit, plenty of shade, the halfway point on their way to Bethany. So he's sitting opposite the temple. So they're looking at the temple, no doubt. Jesus is communicating these things as they're looking out. And we're told, though, that Peter, James, John, Andrew, these two compilations of brothers, they come to Jesus and they asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Now, the disciples' reaction to Jesus' prophecy, it's clear, right? They're concerned. Why? Because they're convinced, without a shadow of a doubt, that what Jesus has just told them about Herod's temple was going to take place. We find that in some of the language that they use. They said, when will these things? Not if. And then they say, what will be the sign? There's no doubt that these men are convinced that what Jesus has said will actually literally come true. And in their reaction, they find themselves with two lingering questions. Two questions come to the forefront from their reaction. Now understand, one of the questions we get from Mark. The second question we get from Matthew's account. Now Mark records, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things will be fulfilled? From my estimation, according to the Greek construction of the sentences here, this is one question. Literally asking this, what sign or what distinguishing singular event, what sign will indicate when these things will begin or will be and will end or will finish? Okay, we just heard you, Jesus. What sign, what will happen? What event will occur that we can look to as an indicator that these things will begin when this happens and will end when that happens? So they're wanting to know very clearly the stopping point and the starting point. So their first question. The second question we find in Matthew chapter 24, verse three, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you, because Matthew includes something that Mark doesn't. Jesus says, what will be the sign? They they ask him, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are fulfilled, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Literally, what sign? Once again, what distinguishing singular event can we look for that will indicate When you're coming back and the world is about to come to an end. Now, Jesus' response to these two questions is commonly and historically known as the Olivet Discourse. It's a sermon. In response to these two questions, Jesus teaches a sermon. They're on the Mount of Olives, which is why we call it the Olivet 
discourse, a sermon Jesus taught and response. Now, in addition to Mark 13, what we'll be looking at, this sermon is also recorded in two other places, Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke chapter 21. And I should tell you up front, the Olivet Discourse, this section of Scripture, Mark 13, is one of the most complicated and hotly debated and divided sections of probably the entire Bible. What's laid out in this sermon has been the source of much debate, lots of dividing, an incredible amount of arguing among theologians, among Bible scholars, even among casual students of Scripture. So to begin with, I want to start by explaining that there are two basic ways of interpreting Jesus' sermon here. There are two ways that you can interpret the Olivet Discourse based upon two contradicting or different eschatological viewpoints. Big word, eschatological. Eschatology is the branch of theology that concerns itself with the study in times events or final events. Now, we're going to look at two, two different ways of looking at the Olivet Discourse, two different types of eschatology, two different views of eschatology. But you should realize, we would take weeks for us to examine every viewpoint concerning eschatology, and even then, every viewpoint when it comes to the Olivet Discourse. There are two basic camps, two different ideas, but even within the two camps, there's a myriad of varying differences within their own camp. Like, it just subdivides all the way out. So we're going to look at two big views, not weighing ourselves down to the minutia. The first way that you can view the Olivet Discourses, the first way that you can view Mark 13, is what's known as preterism. Preterism is the eschatological position that interprets most biblical prophecy as already being fulfilled. Now, even within preterism, you'll find that there are hyperpreterists and there are partial preterists, and you'll find all kinds of subdivisions within the camp of preterism. Though preterists will divide, They don't all agree as to whether the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand years where Jesus rules and reigns on earth, they will divide over whether or not that event is a literal event or it's a spiritual event. Preterists, you will find no uniformity in their beliefs concerning that. However, all preterists believe in a literal second coming of Jesus Christ, that Jesus will come, And they all reject the biblical doctrine known as the rapture of the church, which is why we're looking at preterism. Preterists accept the second coming. They reject the rapture. They kind of all divide all over the place when it comes to to the millennial reign. Preterists teach that Daniel's prophecies were actually fulfilled in the second century B.C., And they teach that the events that are described in the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse were fulfilled in the Roman destruction of Jerusalem 
and 70 AD, which is why, by the way, we took as much time as we did to examine what took place 70 AD. Preterists say everything about this sermon hinges upon that event. Eusebius of Caesarea was the first theologian to introduce preterism. It was the third century AD, and he introduced the idea for this reason. It was a remedy for a problem concerning prophecy that the church had. You see, there's a lot of passages in the scripture, the Old Testament, the book of Revelation, even the Olivet Discourse, that talks about and presents Israel as a literal nation, an actual historical ethnic group of people in future events. The problem is that they weren't around in the third century. Following Titus's destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews were dispersed. They were removed from the homeland, never to return. Three centuries into it, people are like, I don't even know what, there's not a nation of Israel. And so we look at all this prophecy, we look at all this stuff dealing with the nation of Israel, with the Jews, but they're not around. So that's a problem. Not only that, but the Bible, especially in Ezekiel, talks about a third temple. The temple's referred to a lot in the book of Revelation. So wait a second, the temple's destroyed. And then as things progress, the Muslims move in, dominate Jerusalem, and they begin to think, how can future events include the Jews and the temple when we look at world affairs as it is? And so Eusebius presents this idea as a remedy that would exclude the nation of Israel and a future temple from future prophecy. It became, mind you, the dominant view of the church beginning in the third century. And they developed this idea concerning prophecy because preterists, they held and still hold to an idea called replacement theology. Now, they don't like calling it replacement theology. That's kind of actually an insult to them. They refer to it more as covenant theology. And what this means and what they teach and what they believe is that God's covenants and promises for the nation of Israel... At 70 AD, they all transferred. That the children of Israel were no longer God's chosen people, but instead it was the church. That the church replaced Israel. And thus they view all of the things in regards to the end times as being a reference to the church. It provided a doctrinal explanation for the destruction of Israel. Now, Though preterism is still the eschatological view of many reformed theologians that hold fast to replacement theology, its popularity dissipated, waned, as a matter of fact, really became obsolete within Protestantism when in May 1948, something significant occurred that kind of put end times prophecy upside down. And what occurred? The nation of Israel, after 2,000 years of being gone, returned. That a nation, after 2,000 years of no longer being in their homeland, are rebirthed, are reborn, and that their original language becomes adopted. A dead language is resuscitated. And because of that, because of this supernatural event of history, it forced many theologians to reconsider what Eusebius had presented. And that is that maybe a literal reading 
and a future fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Israel are actually meant for Israel and not for the church. Now, here's the relevant question that preterists propose concerning the Olivet Discourse. If Jesus prophetically responds to the disciples' question about the destruction of the future temple, then isn't it only logical to assume the prophecy that follows this sermon found its literal fulfillment in 70 AD? They say, okay, the disciples' question was about the temple. And we know that that found its fulfillment when? 70 AD. And so how can you like honestly and intellectually get to this point where Jesus is addressing a yet future event and skips over entirely what would happen in 70 AD? I mean, shouldn't we, from a, a solid hermeneutical perspective or how we study the Bible, shouldn't we look at the rest of Jesus's response in chapter 13 as an answer to the prophecy he just gave concerning the temple. And though this is fair, and I would say intellectually reasonable to question, I do believe there are two fundamental problems with their assertion. First, as you'll see when we begin to examine the text, it is impossible, absolutely impossible, to draw a hard connection between the prophetic events Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse and the known historical events that occurred in 70 AD, of which are not a mystery, correct? Why? We have an eyewitness account of all of them, his name being Josephus, which is what makes him so important. And so if Jesus' response in the Olivet Discourse is in regards to the destruction of of, of the temple in 70 AD, and Jesus has already established the principle of being literal, hasn't he? Not one stone will be left upon another. Then you would assume, if you're gonna take this position, that everything that Jesus says following, if it's fulfilled in 70 AD, will line up with a literal examination of history. The problem, it doesn't at all. You read through the Olivet Discourse, and if in your mind, this was fulfilled in 70 AD, you have to do a river dance to explain it. You can't. As a matter of fact, the biggest hindrance to this perspective is that it is impossible to fit Jesus's description of the abomination of desolation, which we'll get to next week, and the great tribulation that would follow that event into the eyewitness account of the historical narrative as described and provided by Josephus. There was no abomination of desolation in the temple in 70 AD. So what is Jesus referring to? The second problem I have with their assertion is this. Preterists make the false assumption that Jesus's answer intended to address both of the disciples' questions. Like we've seen this before in our study in Mark, the disciples ask a question and Jesus kind of overlooks the particulars of their question and addresses what? the bigger issue at play, right? And I find that within this example, a similar principle. The two questions asked by the disciples indicated that they made an immediate connection between three events, right? They immediately connected the destruction of the temple 
with Jesus' second coming. Hey, when will be the sign that these things will be and the sign of your coming? And the third, the end of the age. So they combined the destruction of the temple, Jesus' second coming, and the end of the age. And though their question was spawned by a desire to know more about the destruction of their temple, Jesus' answer focused instead on the greater concern. Jesus didn't care at all about the temple. Didn't care a flip about the temple. Jesus addresses the greater concern in the Olivet Discourse by asking and explaining the sign of his coming in relation to the end of the age. So our first point of view is preterism, basically, that what Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse found its historical fulfillment in 70 AD. And if you would like to hold to that position, go for it but you're gonna have problems with it because it doesn't fit with the text. The second point of view, it's just like preterism in the sense that there can be subdivided in a thousand different ways, but I'll simply just call pre-trib, pre-mill. Pre-trib, pre-mill, it's this position. And what I would define this position as being is the eschatological view that holds a literal, historical, futurist fulfillment of biblical prophecy. This camp, though they don't agree with all the particulars, they do believe in three significant events. First, they believe in the rapture of the church. Revelation 4, 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 53, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. They hold to a literal rapture, a catching away of the church. And those in this camp believe that the church age is God's reprieve from his handling of Israel. And according to Matthew 24, that once the time of the Gentiles is completed or the church age is concluded, that God will shift his attention back to the children of Israel, to, to, to the Hebrew people. So they hold to uh, the rapture of the church. Secondly, this position, pre-trib, pre-mill, believes in a literal seven-year period, a future historical seven-year period of worldwide judgment known as the Great Tribulation. And it will be during these seven years that Jesus will judge the sin of the world and finish up his prophetic dealings with Israel as laid out in Daniel chapter nine in the 70 weeks prophecy. The third event these believe in is that Jesus, following the rapture, a seven-year period of history of judgment, that Jesus then, the third point of view, the third event, is that he'll return to earth and his second coming. And in doing so, Jesus will establish a literal rule and reign from Jerusalem for a period of thousand years on the earth, that there'll be an incredible period of restoration, and that when we read all of these prophecies of a future kingdom, with a perfect king and world peace that is a description of this thousand years. Premillennialists view that the prophecies of Daniel, the book of Revelation, and the Olivet Discourse is a future description of a literal period of great tribulation that will culminate in Jesus' second coming, followed by his millennial reign. Now, they'll debate as to where the rapture takes place, where the rapture occurs. 
I define this as pre-trib because I believe that the rapture happens pre-tribulation. Now, though many claim that this eschatological position is young, as a matter of fact, there are those critics that will say that preterism is really the historical position of the church, that this is what the church has always believed, and as a matter of fact, pre-trib, pre-mill is a is an unfounded reaction to the rebirth of Israel. That though this is great that this group of people return and though that we desire them to come into a saving faith and though, yes, we'll support Israel as a, as a blossoming democracy, this is reactionary to this event. The problem is that, yes, it's true that this point of view kind of had a, it came back to the forefront in the 18th century, along with dispensationalism, John Darby and whatnot, there is ample proof, ample evidence, that before Eusebius introduced the idea in the third century, that pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism was actually the view of the first church, that it has a historical root going all the way back to Peter and Paul and James and Andrew, that they saw the Olivet Discourse from this perspective and didn't believe that it had a literal fulfillment in 70 AD. And there have been recently discovered writings that validate this. Clement, who wrote in 90 AD, said, of a truth soon and suddenly shall his will be accomplished as the scripture also bear witness, saying speedily Jesus will come and will not tarry. The Diodace written somewhere between 70 and 100 AD, says to be vigilant over your life. Let your lamps not be extinguished or your loins ungirdened, but be prepared for you do not know the hour in which the Lord returns. Tertullian, writing between 155 and 245 AD, he said, but what a spectacle will that first appearing the advent of our Lord be. Now, the relevant question this position must address. In sense of being fair, laid out some things that a preterist needs to think about concerning the Olivet Discourse. There's some relevant questions that a pre-trib, pre-mill perspective also has to address. For you see, if the Olivet Discourse finds its fulfillment in a future in time scenario, then shouldn't we logically believe that according to this sermon, Jesus taught that the church would go through at least half, if not all, of the great tribulation? And the logic for this perspective or this question is as follows. This sermon explains future events. And since Jesus exhorted the disciples to endure these future events using personal pronouns, as we'll see when we read through it, can't we conclude Jesus' exhortation to persevere through great times of tribulation was meant for the church as much as it was for Israel? And this is an intellectually reasonable and honest question that a pre-trib, pre-mill perspective has to answer. And since I hold to that position, I'm gonna give you three reasons that I disagree with this assertion. First, the context for the disciples' question concerning the future of Israel 
and their temple. Their question was about their nation. It was about this icon of national pride, of, of symbolism. Their question, it was a concern about their people. And their people, at least from their context in their question, was not the church. It was Israel, wasn't it? The church at this point in time for these disciples that come and ask the question, it's a foreign concept. There's only been one reference by Jesus in the gospels about the church. And he says, upon this, I'll build the foundations of my church and the forces of Hades won't prevail against it. But they don't fully understand the church until after Jesus's death and his resurrection and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit some 50 days after this event. And so in their mind, they're asking the question about Israel. And so Jesus answers the question, not to address the church, but to address the concern of Israel. Secondly, their assertion doesn't also take into account other biblical passages that indicate the rapture of the church will take place before the tribulational period. Hermeneutically, I hope you realize, don't cherry pick scripture. It's, it's very easy for you to build any kind of theological argument by cherry picking scripture. When addressing a doctrine or a topic like the rapture, it's not one passage that establishes my entire understanding of the event. It's everything that the Bible has to say that should dictate my view on the event. I shouldn't just go off the all of the discourse, but I should take into account all of the other passages that deal with the event. And what we find is several thoughts that are important when we try to place the rapture into the prophetic timeline. First, the Bible's clear about a precedent of judgment. The Bible clearly establishes that before God punishes the wicked, what does he do? He removes the righteous because he loves the righteous. Noah and his family were found righteous. And they were removed. They were taken care of during great tribulation. Lot and his family were found righteous. And before God poured out judgment on Sodom, what would happen? They would be removed. Jesus even references that the time of his coming, that the world, the climate would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, Paul says, For God did not appoint us, who's us, Israel, no, the church did not appoint us, you and I, to wrath, but to obtain salvation, saving, through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 says, And to wait, Paul exhorts us to wait, for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who will do what? Who will deliver us from the wrath to come. So you obviously have to take into account a precedent for judgment when trying to place the rapture into the prophetic timeline. The second thing you should think through, and most people don't discuss this, is that what's actually restraining, restricting the revealing of the Antichrist today? You know, the Bible is clear that the only thing that's keeping back, the only thing holding at bay the forces of evil is the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in the world through the church. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 5 through, 5 through 8, Paul says this. He says, do you know what's restraining? That he may be revealed in his own time? And in context, he's saying, you want to know what's restraining? The revealing of the son of perdition, 
the Antichrist, this false Messiah. He says, for the mystery of lawlessness, it's at work. Only he, capital he, who now restrains will do so until he, capital he, meaning that the writer indicated divinity in the pronoun, is taken out of the way. And once he is taken out of the way, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth. Doesn't mean that Jesus has bad breath. It means he consumes him with the breath of his mouth and will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. So what's restraining the Antichrist? It's the presence of the church. It's the Holy Spirit's working through the church. And once the church is removed, what is restraining lawlessness is no longer there. The salt and the light are removed. And this world can go to hell in a handbasket. It will, very quickly. The third thought is that the Bible's clear concerning the rapture, the theology of comfort. Everywhere in Scripture, the doctrinal concept of the rapture appears or is presented. It is always being presented as an encouragement to the church. Revelation 3.10, because you have kept my commandment to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which is to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead will rise first, and those who are alive and remain shall be caught up, or literally raptura, where we get the word rapture, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, with that in mind, do what? Comfort one another with these words. If the church has to endure any of the coming tribulation. How in the world would the idea be encouraging or be comforting? And then there's the idea of imminency. This is the idea that the Bible presents the concept of the return of Jesus for the church as an event that can happen at any moment and is not predicated upon any other event. Time and time again, the rapture, the imminency of Christ's return is presented as an exhortation for each generation of believers to do what? Two things, to be watchful and to be ready. And as we'll examine in our look at the Olivet Discourse in this tribulational period, Daniel 9 provides a precise seven-year timeline with signifying events marking the beginning, the halfway point, and the end. And if the rapture were to occur at the end or the middle of the tribulational period, it would remove imminency. Because I can tell you exactly when the abomination of desolation will occur, because the signing of a false peace will take place, start the whole thing. And then I can tell you the day Jesus comes back, because Jesus is being literal in what he's saying. And then there's the environment. The Bible presents the conditions on earth leading up to the rapture as almost polar opposite of the conditions on earth leading up to his second coming. We'll see this as we look at the Olivet Discourse. The environment when Jesus returns for the church, well, there'll be peace on earth. Life will be good. There's an exhortation not to be lulled to sleep because things are clicking. There's peace, there's prosperity, things are normal. And then boom, Jesus comes and what happens? We go to meet him in the air. But the environment for his second coming, it's a world in chaos, a tribulational world in judgment and calamity. And Jesus doesn't call the church to meet him in the air. But as a matter of fact, they're called 
and they're brought from the four corners of the earth to meet him after he's touched down on the Mount of Olives. There's a third thing. The Olivet Discourse, one of the reasons that I believe in this eschatological view of the sermon is because the Olivet Discourse, as we'll see next week, it tracks almost succinctly and chronologically with the book of Revelation, starting with Revelation chapter 6. And that's significant. In Revelation 1 verse 19, Jesus gives John the outline for the revelation. He says, to write the things you have seen. And so John recounts why he's on the island of Patmos to begin with. Jesus appearing to him the things he had seen, past tense. And then he's exhorted to write the things which are present. Revelation 2 and 3, John records seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches, symbolizing, in my opinion, the completion of the church, that these were seven letters written to the church. And then thirdly, write the things which will take place after this. John chapter 4 through chapter 22, John records future events that would come after this. After what? after the things which he had seen, and after the things which are, which in context is what? The church. You will note that following the heavenly scene of chapters four and five, that there is not one mention in chapter six through 22 of the church in the book of Revelation. Instead, you will find only references to the Hebrew people and the nation of Israel. In conclusion, yes, we're not going to actually get to the Olivet Discourse. This is all the prep. There's a bigger question. Zach, why should we care? I mean, really, why should I care? Why should I give a rip? You know, there's, there's even a great movement within my generation of, of born-again, Jesus-loving Christians that are like, why should I care about the end of the world? As a matter of fact, my, my caring about the end of the world, isn't it just, just a distraction to taking care of the world that I have now? I mean, shouldn't my focus be more on ministering to the lost, feeding the poor, as opposed to this eschatology in times Thing. I mean, I mean, let's even be honest. Like, that shouldn't be a very good selling point to the world. It kind of makes us sound like we're doomsday people, that we're off our rocker, that we're not even intellectual, that we're crazy, walking around talking about that there will come a moment in the twinkling of an eye where, boom, we're gone, and you don't want to be that person. I mean, that sounds crazy. So is that the selling point we want to have to the world? So why should I care? I think you should care for two reasons. Do you realize that the Bible speaks more about the end times, the rapture of the church, the tribulational period, the second coming of Christ, the millennial reign? The Bible speaks more about those things than it does any other biblical concept in all of Scripture. It speaks more of the second coming, the return of Jesus, than it does about grace or salvation by faith. Almost, they estimate one out of every 10 verses in the Bible deal with or allude to these future events. So why should you care? Because the Bible does. It's the majority of the book. Secondly, 
Maybe I'm just too simple. But for me, knowing how things end, knowing what's going to happen in the future, knowing how this whole world comes to a close, to me, it should provide clarity as to what things I should prioritize today. Now, maybe I'm just thinking real simple. And I'm not going to insult conservation. But really, if I believe that the world's going to burn one day and be consumed, then am I going to spend all my time, energy, effort, and resources into making a big part of our church movement recycling? Is that good? Sure. But what's most important? I know how everything ends. And knowing how everything ends, I can go to great lengths to try to end global war. But I know what? I'm not going to be successful. Because the only person that can end global war is Jesus. And I can run around trying to save the planet, trying to make sure that the trees aren't cut down. down. But I know when it's all said and done, one third of the earth is scorched. I'm not going to be able to be successful. But Jesus will restore the earth. Being concerned and bent out of shape about global warming. I can't do a thing about it. I can cut as many carbon emissions as I want. But when it's all said and done, I know I'm going to fail. Why? Because a third of the sky is burnt up. And the world is heated to incredible heat temperatures. Who can heal that? Who can fix that? Not me. It's Jesus. You see, to me, knowing how everything ends, it, it clarifies what I should prioritize today. And what should I prioritize? Well, knowing that my king can come at any moment in the twinkling of an eye. I want to live a life of righteousness. That my focus should be on living a life pleasing to my king. Why? Because when he comes back, I want to be found as a faithful servant. Not finding myself distracted by the cares of the world, but finding myself faithful to be his hands and feet, to be a work of redemption. If I know the end, then the truth of it is that I should have more of a passion to reach the lost because if the things Jesus talks about in this sermon come true and I love people, I don't want them to be there for that. Not a chance. So there are those that will try to dismiss dismiss or diminish. You're gonna take three or four weeks to go through end time stuff? What a waste, Zach. No, I don't think so. If we can clarify what's coming, then we can prioritize effectively what we should be doing. And I think if you can put those two together, you're ahead of the game. And so, Father, with that, we ask that you'd work these things into our heart. In Jesus' name.